Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, your favorite church unity podcast, probably. If you want to hear from pastors, professors, and everything in between, right, sure. And, you know, the occasional train talk. Right, right, yeah. Uh, have we got the podcast for you? All right, thank you guys for tuning in to the Whole Church Podcast. We've got a very special episode. We've been telling you about this guest for probably a while. We've been really excited to talk to her. It's a sister Rose from CCM, which is Catholic Campus Ministries in Wilmington, North Carolina, part of uh, UNCW. Um, and it's going to be a really good one, but uh, before we jump into it, TJ's going to tell you what all we need. Right, so I'm TJ. That was Josh. What? You didn't say that. Oh, I thought you were Josh and I was TJ. Oh, yeah. Okay. I fixed it. Thanks. So, guys, we need you to consider supporting us financially on Patreon, of course. But uh, there are some things we need that we can use to make the podcast better. Uh, we need new hardware. We need a new laptop. Or, you know, if you want to just donate a whole studio. Yeah, that would that'd be, be great. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Uh, we would like new software as well. And um, of course, we need a new, new cover photo for our Facebook and SoundCloud pages. If anyone has any graphic design abilities or anything, and then... um. What's the other thing? Oh, we're also looking to update our theme song, so if any of you guys have an interest in that or are able to help us in that area, uh, let us know. Um, and as far as the Patreon stuff, even like uh, this Skype call, you know, we uh, the last podcast we did with Chandler, uh, we recorded and actually ran out of funds on Skype almost near the end of the episode, so I made I had to make sure we updated that on here. So Everything costs money, so, you know, any little bit helps, even if it's just Enough to help us do another Skype call, you know. Um, yeah. So, and that's at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast. Right. right. And, and we need someone to run our Twitter page. Yes. Yes, we do. Badly. Yeah. And, um, I think the current coordinator forgets we have one. I, I do all the time. Um, and if uh, you know anyone who can help us, or if you're willing to help us, you can contact us at thewholechurch at gmail.com. Not the whole church podcast, just thewholechurch at gmail.com. And uh, also, we love to have some feedback so we can read it on, on the podcast. It's been a little while since we had feedback, so please just tell us we're doing okay or doing awful. You know, whatever. Both of those. Yeah, tell, tell us both. Awesome. Okay, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump into our icebreaker question. Um, Sister Rhodes, we will answer first to give you time to think. I did kind of a one of the more convoluted ones because I wanted to show off how cool Sister Rose was, let everybody know. Nuns can be cool. Also, I, I love Sister Rose. She's great. But uh, yeah, so our icebreaker question today is if Pokemon, like the video game, used real-life animals... And you were the water gym leader. Who would be your main? So you don't need to know Pokemon because they're using real life animals in this scenario. But you're water gym leader, so we're gonna do just aquatic animals in the Pokemon arena. Who would be your main go-to Pokemon slash animal? And uh, DJ, did you want to answer first? Uh, no, I didn't. Did you want me to answer first? Absolutely. I'm going to go with the killer whale. Because mm. I feel like I could probably teach it some dark type moves as well as some water moves. Kind of get some diversity in there. Plus it's got the size and it's got the teeth. 
And it's got the speed. Just a really good animal for Pokemon fights. Yeah. Right. But it has to be an animal. Yes. Right? Correct. So I can't choose a battleship. No. <laughs> no, TJ. <laughs> you cannot choose a battleship. Interesting. Well, I'd probably <laughs> choose an otter. A sea otter. Really? Yeah. Why? Oshawott, Duwat, Samurott, those were all otters. What are these things you're saying right now? They are all Those are names of... uh, I don't know any of those. I know, like, first gen, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So you just do it because it's sort of like a Pokemon you like? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So, uh, Sister Rose, if, uh... Oh, it's definitely the Dolphin. Mm. Nice. Good choice. May I yes. ask why? They're smart, they're fast, they work together, they they can fly high when they need to, they can dive deep when they need to, uh, they're agile, and um, um, they'd be my choice. All really solid reasons. It's an excellent yeah. choice. I feel like the dolphin would be one of those who could do, like, you know how they have those moves where that take two turns because it, like, dies deep and then the next move it does, like, a bunch of damage? Yeah. Yeah, I can yeah, see a dolphin that. could use dive and balance. That'd be it's great. Like, opposite thing. That's smart. Smart move. I like it. I like it a lot. All right, so getting that out of the way, um, Sister Rose, I met you at UNCW. I was a student there for... I think two and a half years before I transferred. Mm-hmm. Out. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, our listeners know I'm not Catholic. I grew up uh, Pentecostal. The church got a prophecy. But uh, oh, I had gross. a friend, Zach. I, I don't remember how to pronounce his last name. Tom Kowski. Tim Tom Kowski. What? Such a good last name. Zach's a great guy. But uh, he invited me. I think y'all had like a movie night. And he, then he just kept inviting me to stuff with y'all's group and I felt really included in everything you did. Uh, I was even there a couple times for stuff like, uh, y'all, I think y'all burned incense and a couple different things. Um, I was there during some sacraments. I never was able to participate, but that never made me feel left out. Can you speak some on how y'all were able to do that? Because I know I'm not the only one. There's been other non-Catholics that have been part of the group and just felt included. How do y'all um, kind of create that culture of inclusivity? inclusiveness? Well, you know, it it goes back to our mission. Um, You know, mission statements are important. And so we have been blessed that we happen to have a house on the edge of campus. And so part of our mission is gathering students together to build community, uh, communities of support. So part, besides the fact that I'm, you know, I'm here to meet, um, you know, education and sacramental needs, uh, for the Catholic students, part of our mission, and I'm not putting them they're, they're side by side, is the mission of hospitality. You know, college campuses can sometimes be um, intense, crazy places, and so to try to create a space where people can be welcome, where they can be respected, that, um, you know, that they can just relax. I mean, <laughs> relaxation is really important, um, you know, so uh, to build a community, not only especially a community of faith, is 
it's not just about worship. Worship is important. It's central to what we do. But it's responding to the physical, you know, the social, the psychological, um, you know, cravings of today's young people. Um, so it is, it's a mystery, ministry of hospitality, which is what you experience. And, you know, our joke is, um, underneath our sign where it says Catholic Campus Ministry, um, we say characters welcome. So maybe, <laughs> Josh, that's why you felt so comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> that's almost definitely true. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I mean, you talk about hospitality. It brings me back because I'm like, you know, I, I, I think it's been probably about nine years since mm-hmm. I was, you know, actively wow. around. But uh, I remember, I think it was the first set of finals. You know, I'm just a young college guy. I didn't know anything about Catholic faith. I don't know really anything about anything other than being a Pentecostal. Um, I, I was a little bit of a recluse, and I remember that I was kind of having a rough patch. I didn't really talk to anybody. I wasn't going out doing stuff. But I heard that you guys were doing a pizza night. And I was like, man, I am hungry. Finals do suck. Pizza sounds great. And I just, it, it was like a, a really bright, nice moment in the middle of, well, you know, finals and winter can kind of be kind of dark, so it was, it was good. good. So how do you um, how do you get the students on board? Because it's not just you know you and the leaders, you know, producing that inclusive. How what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for, DJ? Inclusiveness or inclusivity? Inclusivity. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, it's not you know, just the leaders creating that culture, but even the students. You know, Zach kept inviting me to stuff. How do you get? the students on board with this? Well, I think, you know, it has to do with, um, you know, there, as I said, there's a core group and when they feel comfortable, when they feel that they're listened to, when they feel that they're respected, you know, they want to share that, you know, when you have good news, you know, when something's good, you want to tell somebody else about it and you can't force that. You know, I opened the door. Um, uh, funny you should mention pizza because uh, when I was first sent here, I had a meeting with the bishop and I told him from the beginning that besides, uh, you know, the maintenance of the house, my highest uh, line item is going to be food. Hmm. Food's important, um, especially for oh, young yeah. adults. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and as you recall, I think you had uh, more than one Wednesday night dinner. Um, and I take those meals very seriously. You know, we put tablecloths down, you know, real cloth. And there is a real art and skill to sitting at a table, eating a meal, and having good conversation. And today, a lot of students don't have that experience at home. And so for me... You know, Eucharist is central to us, but how can you understand what is going on during a Mass when we're celebrating the Eucharist if you don't understand what it means to break bread at the table? So I take those meals very seriously. Then also, I I kind of think I have some memories of you being at a couple Tuesday breakfasts also. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, and Tuesday. Tuesday morning breakfast from, you know, 7 to 10 creates the space and the rules of engagement, as you will recall, 
is you sit at the counter and I cook your breakfast. And during that time, we will talk about whatever you want to talk about. Or if you don't want to talk at all. And so I would say that my best ministry is done in the midst of a meal. And you know what? There's this great precedent for that. Uh, as you may recall, Mother Teresa. You go through the scriptures, you know, go through the gospels and look at all the times that Jesus is at ta- having table fellowship. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, we've actually talked about that on the podcast a couple times before, even when, um, I specifically remember Mormon talk. It's an episode we we were able to interview a Mormon family and how how just sitting at a table affects your ability to be close so much. Right, and it, it is true. And you know, whenever she talks about you know her ministry and that Tuesday morning breakfast, I remember a lot of those Tuesday mornings. Just me being the curious person I was, I remember sitting they have like a little counter there. And she's making breakfast, and I'm just like, tell me this about the Catholic faith. Well, how do y'all feel about this? How do you feel about this? How come you can do this and this person can't do that? And I just, I feel like I probably asked you everything under the sun I could think of relating to Mm -hmm. the Catholic faith. Yeah, and you see, here's the thing. I would argue, if people are trying to understand what communion is, all right, that if you're having table fellowship and there's a quality of conversation where each of the participants is fully present, okay, that conversation is transformed into communion. Right? So that's the quality of attention that I strive for. And that's the kind of presence quality of presence that transforms hearts, that helps somebody say, you know, I'm okay, that, you know, I, I'm i loved, I'm cared about. And I think that's what, you know, is lacking in our world today. And so that that's a very, that's very intentional on my part, to try to create that space where people can be themselves, authentically be themselves ask the questions that are on their minds and hearts. And, you know, we're all seekers. So, I mean, I I have a lot of epistemological humility. There are things I know about, but I'm a life learner. So I'm learning from the students as much as the students may be learning from me. Actually, I remember hearing you... That's probably what you were experiencing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I, I remember you using the phrase life learner a lot. I think that's something I kind of picked up from... and. I also do want to say while we're on the podcast that I think a large part of why I'm so eager to try and include people of the Catholic faith in the whole church podcast is because of my time at UNCW where I was able to experience and see the genuineness of your faith and hospitality and inclusiveness and all of that. It's it's just, it's really powerful. And, you know, like you're, you're right there. you barely off of campus. I didn't even know the house was off of campus until like a year in. I was like, oh, I thought it was on campus. <laughs> it's so close. But it's, um, I think it's a powerful thing whenever you have meals, especially with college students, like you were saying. Uh, I know the other college ministry I was involved with at UNCW was uh, Crossway Ministries. And one of the big things they did is they had 
different families take in a student and have a meal with them once a month or something. And I think um, it's really kind of underplayed by a lot of older generations exactly how dark college can be for some people. You know, all the stress, all of the, you know, I have people, you know, I work at Chipotle, I'm a manager, and I know I have people who work full-time and are full-time student, barely holding on to their grades and their job, and it's it's hectic. It's crazy for a lot of them. And just to have someone care enough to sit down and make them breakfast, that that's that changes their whole world, you know? And I, I, it's yeah, really you're being, you're being evaluated all the time when you're a college student. You know, oh, yeah. you're being you're being evaluated in your classes. You're living in close quarters, so you're being evaluated or judged sometimes by people on your hall. You know, it's it's a, and you are living in such close quarters with a, a population of people who are all the same age, more or less. Um, who are experiencing a lot of freedom but lack experience, you know. And so, um, you know, in one sense, for a young person to be thrown into that, it's like, wow, this is great. But then you discover that it you got to find ways to stay grounded, you know, to keep your feet on the ground because you can get swept away in all sorts of things. And so part of what the ministry does is just to say, you know, you know, be you know, be who you were created to be. That's what that you know. Seek to find what God's desire is for you. You know, and live that. That's the message. You know, become the best you you can be, the best Josh you can be, the best TJ you can be. And don't worry about the other stuff. You know, and and I mean, people coming into this house is utterly gratuitous. I'm not judging them. I'm not evaluating them, you know, I'm welcoming them. And also, as you may recall, I'm I'm visually impaired, so I don't go far from the campus. So I'm either walking the campus, I'm in the student union, or I'm here, and you remember I live right next door. So while the students are here, you know, they know um, where to find me, you know, and so if they get jammed up, they know they can call me, you know. Um, so I think I think the the consistency of that, the steadfastness of that, um, is is a comfort when people are far away from home. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And what, what's really interesting too was for me anyway is we're holiness Pentecostal. We're very you know conservative by the book, and I kind of grew up a little sheltered because of that. And um, so, so I think going to college, you know, living in a dorm saw a lot of stuff that I've never even thought of before, you know. So having places like CCM, the y'all's house, it, it provided like a safe place. And I think that was really important to me, especially at that time. And I think it's important for people, if you are near a college, to do that, you know, have meals, invite someone from the college over, give them a safe place. Uh, sometimes they need that. But yeah, so that Really glad that you're still doing all of that and that you were there for that. You're a, a nun with the Catholic Church. But yes. see, that that threw me when I first started going there because you don't dress like the nuns on TV or, you know, act like the nuns on TV. <laughs> What's up? What are some of the misconceptions you think people, you know, from outside the Catholic faith or, you know, basically the other me's out there who haven't ran into Sister Rose yet? What do you think some of the misconceptions are that they have? 
I think um, primarily there's a monolithic view of what a, a, a religious person, um, you know, a member of a religious congregation is. And there's some reason for that. Um, some of the habits that some of the congregations have worn in the past um, were kind of unique within the 20th, 21st century. But um, I think that there's a vision of or a perception of sisters. Um, you know, I'm not Whoopi Goldberg. I can't sing and I can't dance. Uh, oh, that's sad. <laughs> actually, I can dance. But I, <laughs> <laughs> not like Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, it's interesting because from the apostolic age, the early, you know, the, the beginning of the, uh, the church as we know it, okay, there have always been people who have felt called to be set apart, all right? And you, you have, we had the desert fathers and the desert, desert mothers who left the towns and villages and went off and lived as hermits in the desert. And then in, we study church history you know, there have been various needs that have come up, um, you know, and in response to those needs, there have been people who have felt called. So, you know, we have the Benedictines, the, mona- the monasteries, you know, that sprung up during the Middle Ages, for example. And, you know, they became centers of education. Um, then, you know, there was the, the, the monasteries that housed both monks and nuns, okay, there were men and women's monasteries, uh, they took vows of stability, which meant they they not only entered a religious community, but they entered a particular monastery and they stayed there. They didn't move around, all right? So then we have the advent of, like, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, all right? And the uh, Franciscans, founded by Francis of Assisi, you know, had this call to serve the poor, and they were moving around, going to where the the poor were located. The, the the Dominicans were mendicants, okay? They were itinerant preachers, so they went from town to town preaching. So there were, and then and there are Franciscan women, and there are Franciscan men. Uh, there are Dominican men, and there are Dominican women. Then after. The, um, you know, the Reformation, um, there was uh, a, a move towards apostolic religious life, okay, men and women who were going to serve the church in the marketplace, so to speak, people going out. So you have the Jesuits that were founded, you know, in the 1500s, and um, they were educators, and they put themselves at the service of the Pope. My congregation... Um, the Sisters of St. Ursula. We were founded in 1606. And the woman who founded us was a woman by the name of Anne de Saint-Ange. And she was educated by her father. But at the time, girls were not being educated. Girls and women did not have an education. And the prevailing thought then is if you weren't educated in the faith, you know, you could not be saved. And so she was very concerned about the souls of all the girls and the women who, you know, who were not educated. And she lived right next to uh, a Jesuit college. And so she saw all these boys being educated. So she wanted to start a school where girls could receive an education. But she didn't want to be cloistered 
sequestered, which is to say she did not want to be in a monastery where, you know, you went in an enclosure where you went in and you never came out. So we are a congregation of women who are non-cloistered, have never been cloistered. Wow. We all, and at the time, she wore the dress, the widow's dress of the day, contemporary dress for her time. She was also very much taken by the spirituality of St. Ignatius of Loyola. So we're Ignatian in our spirituality. And lastly, um, we have a mission of education. Um, but she grew up in a time of Christian humanism. So we have a very broad understanding of what that education is about. So most of the, almost all of the women in my community have a background in formal classroom education, but we have gone beyond that to education in whatever we do. All right, so, you know, here at, for myself, here at um, CCM, everything I do is as an educator. But um, getting back to those stereotypes, my congregation continued to wear the widow's dress of, you know, the early uh, 1600s um, into the 20th century, okay? In, and and we spread to the United States, throughout Europe, um, and we had sisters who then were go- in the 50s who were going to Africa. We were invited by the, by the Vatican to go back and look at our roots, you know, look at the founding charism, the spirit of our community. And what our community discovered in doing that is the three elements that I mentioned before, you know, non-cloister, Christian education, and Ignatian spirituality are the essential elements that make us who we are. And we are wearing black serge with a widow's peak that made us look like Mickey Mouse. And that became a modern-day cloister because it set us apart from the people we were there to serve. And so for us, wearing that dress didn't make any sense in terms of our founding charism. So for us, that's why we gave up wearing that habit, that 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 particular dress. Now, for other congregations, this is what's really important. Not every religious congregation is the same, okay? There is a, a particular spirit about that congregation. You know, when a young woman asks me about entering religious life, I said, you know, you have to go around and meet them. And, you know, they have come and see where you can live with them for a while. And I said, ultimately, it's kind of like finding the congregation where you can smell your mother's chicken soup. I mean, <laughs> it's there's a spirit that draws you to a congregation, and so um, each one is different. And so I think to get back, to, this is a long-winded response to your question, that but to get good. back to your initial question, the big misconception is that we're all the same, huh. and we're not. We have different. We have a different charism. We have different ministries, and what's really interesting is that there are still people who feel called to be hermits. There are people who still feel called to the monasteries. 
There are people who still feel called to mendicant congregations. There are people who feel called to Franciscan spirituality. So when you look at religious life in the Catholic Church, it's like a mosaic. It's not that one ended and another one began. They're still alive and about, you know, and, and, you know, some people are concerned that there's been a diminishment in the number of people called to religious life. And I would say that's not a con- my concern, okay, because we're all called to holiness in various ways. And in, in the past, women did not have many options. You know, you either married and stayed home and raised a family, you became a teacher, you became a, a nurse, you became a secretary. You didn't have the, women didn't have the options. And it was kind of interesting because women who entered religious life were, had the privilege of going on for more education. I mean, the first PhD in computer science was, was earned by a, a sister. Oh, wow, really? Huh. Yeah. That's fascinating. For you. Um, but there, you know, we had the opportunities for education as women religious. But, you know, there are a lot of women today who are faith-filled who take their faith seriously, who may not be called, feel called to taking vows, you know, um, religious vows, um, and they are able to use their gifts for the, you know, for the good of, you know, the world. So um, I think that's part of, of, you know, what what you're seeing in terms of people have this stereotypic view. Now, I can tell you, even within the Catholic Church, Whenever there are publications and they're talking about religious, they always go find a sister who's wearing a habit because, the, you know, picture's worth a thousand words. Right. And for, for the religious today who wear habits, the habit has a very specific meaning for them, okay, because of their spirit and charism. The veil has a very specific meaning for them, okay? It did not have those meanings for us. So... You know, it's not like one is better than the other. It's because our our charisms and our missions are different. Wow. And how we express that is different. So that's, you know, as you say, you meet me and it's like, as soon as somebody hears I'm a sister, um, they, you know, think I, I don't, I'm very naive and innocent in terms of what goes on in the world. Um, but like here, for example, here in Wilmington, for 10 years, I ran the outreach office down at the Basilica Shrine of St. Mary's. And so I've probably been in places that you have never been. Um, so unfortunately, I'm very much aware of the suffering in this world. I know who's living under the bridges. And I, you know, back in the 90s, um, I had the occasion of rescuing babies out of crack houses, um, none of which I'd recommend. But it needed to be done at that time. And so um, being a religious is a very privileged place because I can travel in many circles, Um, you know, whether it's in areas of power or in the margins of society. Um, And my my goal is to make Jesus Christ known and loved. And the way I do that is by the way I live my life. Wow. Man. I feel like we're going to have to do another podcast sometime just to ask you about all of that stuff you've seen and done. It's fascinating. I didn't even know any of that. 
But uh, yeah, the other thing, the other thing that's interesting too is, like in the United States, there are religious congregations who were founded here in the U.S. and they're only in the U.S. Wow. We are an international congregation. Um, we were founded, as I admit, in Dole, France, and right now our generally our headquarters is in Tours, France. But we are in the United States, we're in Europe, and we're in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're part of a federation oh, wow. of, of sisters who are also, you know, founded by Anderson Ponge. And, you know, so we're in India, we're in South Africa, we're in Chad, we're in Ivory Coast, you know, Switzerland, um, you know, uh, Belgium. We have headquarters in, in those, those countries as well. Um, and so, you know, for example, last June, I spent most of the, well, I spent all of June in, in the DRC. Oh, wow. Um, and so, so what happened being part of a, an international congregation, um, we are always challenged to broaden our horizons and views because sometimes we, as Americans, you know, uh, can be, um, unconsciously drawn into American exceptionalism. That the way we do things is the best way. All right, we do things differently, and you know, efficiency and pragmatism are very much part of the American psyche. But when you travel, and when you are, you know, in my case, I have the privilege of being in places in the Congo that you know, a tourist would never be. Um, living with my own Congolese sisters, I and all my European sisters. Um, you know, there's a, there's a call to some humility to recognize that things can be done differently, but yet that which is essential, that spirit, that charism that we all, um, you know, are called to, um, connects us in a very deep way. So I can go into any one of our houses anywhere in the world and I can feel at home. And that's something that amazes me. Never ceases to amaze me. Wow! Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it's, that's, that's a lot been... of. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I don't say it's a, a lot to take in. I know it's really, really cool. You said it's a a Paul apostolic tradition. I don't. Um, I think I'm slaughtering the word. Apostolic. Apostolic. Yeah, I, I really like that. I really enjoy. Um, I like ministries that go to the people, so I enjoy that a lot. I also find it really interesting how even inside the Catholic Church, there's such diverse congregations and yet still unity. And that thing that that speaks volumes to what we want to talk about here. You know, the whole church podcast, all about church unity. Your uh, favorite church unity podcast, probably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it speaks volumes to all of all of that. Just knowing that there's such diversity like that, um, and still, you know, you said you feel home all these other places. There's still that inclusivity, and that's that's really cool. Um, also, I just have a side note here. I don't know how it fits in here, but uh, Sister Rose loves body surfing. She's just a normal, really cool person. <laughs> uh, also, do you wanna? Why do you love body surfing, Sister Rose? Can you talk to us just for a second about body surfing? Because I feel the need for speed. <laughs> Excellent. Good time. That's that's a great answer. Have you so considered drag I... racing? What's that? Have you considered drag racing? 
Well, you know, I, I thought about that because you don't really need to see because you're going in a straight line, you yeah. know, so that's got possibilities, but it is really loud, you know, and, and, you know, I have very sensitive ears. So, you know, I have to, I, I, I haven't done it. Let's just say that. I do know how to drive. I have brothers who taught me how to drive. Um, you know, they suggested that perhaps I might be in the best shape, um, of anyone in the car, so I should know how to operate a vehicle. Um, but because of my vision, you know, they kind of like you to be able to see beyond the hood, and <clears throat> I can't uh-huh. do that. But the ocean, um, my dad was, um, when during World War II, was in the um, Coast Guard. And among other things, he was a swim instructor. And he and my aunt were, you know, ocean people. And actually, my name, McNamara, is uh, in the Celtic language means son of the sea. So perhaps I really should be Nico Mara, daughter of the <laughs> sea. Um, but I was in the ocean um, on the eastern end of Long Island before I could walk. Wow. Um, and I um, learned a lot about the ocean, both from my father and from a very wise woman who was our neighbor who was the daughter of um, whalers from from eastern Long Island. They came down from New England, and they were out there for generations upon generations, and she taught us a lot. But the thing about body surfing is I think it's a great metaphor for life because you have to learn the rhythm of the waves, the sets of the waves as they come. And you have to make the judgment to go or not to go, to dive, to jump, or to ride. And you may think it's the perfect wave. You push off, you swim into the wave, and you're on the crest, and you may have the ride of your life. Or you may get rolled. You might have done everything right, but the wave just changed and you got rolled. And when you get rolled... You know, if you tighten up your body, you're going to get hurt. If you just let the the chaos take you for a little bit and, you know, pay attention to which way the bubbles are going, you'll know which way is up, which way you'll find air to breathe. And you can get back in there and ride another wave. And for me, when I'm out in the ocean, I'm nowhere else. It's It's an activity that makes me completely present to the moment. Everything else in my mind disappears, and you just wait for that one wave where you feel like you're flying. And I think that's that's the draw to body surfing. And then when the day is done and you come out of the water and sit on the sand, um, you know, there's nothing for me that's more satisfying. Wow. So body surfing for me is, is sort of a metaphor for life. Wow. And yeah. the thing is, that when you're in the ocean, you are a guest, you know, and and the ocean is always going to win. And so what you have to do is to be very respectful. My father taught us three rules of the ocean. Never turn your back on the ocean. Rule number two, only breathe when there's air. And uh-huh. rule number three is not to forget rule number one or rule number two. Good rules. Good rules. Nice one. Yeah, so uh, I think that was a good intro. Now we all know Sister Rose pretty well. Uh, TJ, would you like to start the podcast? Oh, yeah, of course.
So mm. you mentioned that you lived in the DRC. Did you live in Kinshasa or did you live in um, the, I flew the... I flew through Kinshasa to Lumbashi. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't um, super Lumbashi is the second largest city and it's in the southern it's in the re- the Shaba the Katanga region. Right. Yeah, I've always been super interested in that whole part of Africa. Mm. Just because it has a really tumultuous history. Oh, it has a tremendously tumultuous history. It, and it's also an absolutely beautiful country, mm-hmm. rich in natural resources, but its history with Belgium, um, and now China actually, but it's a different kind of relationship. Um, oh. you know, it, the, the, so many of the people still live in abject poverty because they've never been able to benefit from the resources of their own country. Mm-hmm. It's awful, but it is such an incredible country. And even in Kinshasa, you can tell the city is where everyone with money lives. And directly outside of the city is poverty. Yeah, and what what you're seeing is like, for example, Kinshasa and uh, Lumbumbashi um, were Belgian. They were built like Belgian cities. I Mm -hmm. mean, and you can see the architecture. Um, and that was, you know, when it was, you know, King Leopold had, it was his playground, you know. Um, and then what happened when Mobutu Sisiseko became the dictator, one of the things that he swore to do was to destroy the infrastructure that the Belgians had introduced. So, like, when our sisters who were there in the 50s, um, you know, it was the Jacamine Mines in, in Lubumbashi that was make, making arrangements for the sisters to come to teach in school. But the sisters' homes had electricity and running water and so forth. After uh, Mobutu took place, uh, took charge, you know, all of that disappeared. And you walk around in, in some sections of Lumbumbashi, um, you see, you know, it looks like, a, you know, a war-torn city. Mm-hmm. But once you get outside of the, the cities, into the cité and then into the bush, you know, it's a whole nother story. Right. So that was just a tangent about, you know, <laughs> DRC that I don't want to talk about. But uh, I'm actually really glad you mentioned the Catholic Reformation while you're answering Josh's last question, <laughs> uh, which was 15 minutes ago. But... Uh, <laughs> But what exactly, for ourselves and our listeners, what exactly happened during the Catholic Reformation? And more specifically, the Council of Trent, if that's not too much to ask. (laughs) You can take the course on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see, how can I speak to this um, briefly? Um, I think one of the first things I would say is this. you know, we often have this view uh, that of history that's somewhat linear. We like there's the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Reformation, or the Counter Reformation, and it it wasn't linear at all. I would argue. I think what's interesting is really to understand uh, Martin Luther, and I think we often uh, use shorthand when we speak about you know the how the Reformation came about. Um, I think Martin Luther was a very faithful uh, academician and monk. 
um, who came of age in a time when there was a lot of corruption and um, in in the Vatican and at the highest levels. And, you know, as you well know, the issue was uh, the sale of indulgences. And they were quite zealous about selling these indulgences, and the funding from that was going towards uh, building St. Peter's Basilica in, you know, um, in Rome. Um, there were abuses. I mean, it was a, it was not a, 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 a great time in the history of the church with respect to its pastoral mission. And Luther was pointing that out. And, you know, he, I don't think, realized what he was up against in terms of, you know, the, the myopic vision at that point and the goal of raising money. For the for you know for Rome, and you know we talk about okay what happened when did the Reformation start you know when it's like we all have that date right October you know what thirty first uh-huh. right he yeah. you know Luther put the ninety five thesis on the the door of you know of and of the church in Wittenberg. Well, he wasn't doing something very radical then. What he was doing, he was an academician and he wanted to debate this because he was really worried about the church. You know, he was worried about the corruption. They were selling these indulgences to people who couldn't afford to buy them. They were taking, it was not out of their excess. It was out of their want. Um, and they were being convinced that this was going to save them and save their dead relatives, for example. Okay. So Luther really is trying to point out something from within the church as a faithful monk. Um, and the forces at, you know, at, you know, that he was coming up with against were digging their heels in. All right. And so the more they dug their, he kept saying, show me where I'm wrong. And, you know, they were using the authority of the church as their argument. And so, moves Luther further and further in questioning and you know we can talk about you know sacraments the role of scripture and all you know the various things that Luther stood for and you know he was speaking on behalf of all these people who had great burden on you know put upon them over this you know these sales of indulgences and so yes you know the the reformation happened and what it called the church to is taking his challenges and saying, okay, who who is the Catholic Church and who's in and who's out? And so it's interesting in the Council of Trent, you know, there was a lot of anathema sick, which is, you know, if you do this, you're in, and if you, do, if you don't do this, you're out, you know. Um, and so it was a challenge to the Catholic Church um, to define who it was and what made you faithful and what put you outside the church. And it also, you know, um, had the church further define, for example, the sacramentality of the priesthood, um, you know, um, and and the sacraments in general. So there were there there were good things that came out of the Council of Trent. Um, there were it it forced the issue of define further defining itself 
within the context of the Reformation itself. So, you know, it was political powers, it was religious powers, you know, um, intention, and as is every ecumenical council, you know, there's an agenda that is set forth by the lived experience that causes the, 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 the church itself to redefine itself. And, you know, we see that in scripture. You go back to the first council of Jerusalem. Does a follower of Jesus have to become a Jew first? Okay, so they had a debate. They had to decide, is this, is this necessary? And they said, no, it was not necessary. All right, so Trent was triggered by, um, you know, the, the Reformation that was taking place in, you know, in particularly, you know, Germany and, uh, you know, in the area that Luther was, you know, influential. Um, and so, as I mentioned, the Jesuits, the Jesuits, you know, uh, were established and they became educators in the faith. So um, Trent for, forced the church to further define what it meant to be a member, uh, what what we believe, just as, you know, other councils. And then the um, religious congregations became, you know, open schools to further the faith. And that's the same thing that happened with the Second Vatican Council. You know, when when John the Twenty Third, Pope John the Twenty Third, called the Second Vatican Council, the issue at hand was we had been through this whole period of the Enlightenment that launched us into modernity, and then the question was. How does the church live in the modern world? And so that council, that ecumenical council, came to address those questions. Now, Trent, you know, went over, I mean, I'm not, let me just think, I think it was around uh, 1545 to 1563. So there were multiple sessions of, of that council. And, you know, and then the documents were, you know, promulgated, you know, with uh, the council. Second Vatican Council started in 63 and went to about 67, I think. So when we talk about these councils, we're not talking about let's get together for a few days and have a meeting. Uh, we're talking about um, major preparation, the best thinkers and theologians and, and church leaders coming together to prayerfully consider um, what is needed in the church at that time. Right. And do you feel like the church is closer because of the Council of Trent or not? Well, I would say that um, in the Catholic Church, the highest teaching authority is the Ecumenical Council. All right. And so I'd say today's church is still in the process of receiving the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. So, um, you know, those, I, that is, that council addresses much more what it means to live in a modern age. And we're still trying to interpret that and understand that. What's interesting in, in the, in the teaching of the Catholic Church, okay, you have a teaching promulgated and then we have what's called the uh, census fideum, the sense of the faith so you have a council, but then it takes years 
for the, the faithful to fully receive the teaching. And sometimes there are teachings that take hold more than others. And so, sure, there are, there are contributions that Trent has made towards our, our thinking and our religious imagination. But, um, I think for Catholics today, uh, the teaching of the Second Vatican Council is the most recent council and the highest teaching authority. And so, I think Catholics are still trying to digest, um, and to understand, um, the teachings from that council. What amazes me is, for example, in the mid-20th century, um, the Catholic Church had this um, convergence of, of major theological thinkers emerge, all of whose, whose theology was in, influenced and informed by the First and Second World Wars. So when I say that, I'm thinking about people like Yves Kungar, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who later became Benedict XVI, um, Karl Rahner, um, Balthazar, um, Henry de Lubac. Um, they were these amazing thinkers. And, and then, of course, the American theologian, John Courtney Murray, who wrote the, pretty much wrote the document on religious liberty. Um, so I would say, if you want to know about what's informing the thinking of today's Catholic Church, it's the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and how we're understanding them. And if you look at our at the, the um, past couple of popes, you have you know John Paul II, Saint John Paul, who uh, grew up during the war, experienced the war, and was part was just coming on you know on the um, you know coming of age as a as a philosopher, playwright and theologian, um, during the council. Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict the Sixteenth, was one of the great thinkers of the council. But our current Pope Francis is a bit younger and um so he is the product of the Second Vatican Council. So it's it's very interesting. Um And he's the first one. Yeah, he's the first. Yes, absolutely. They, you know, um, Joseph Ratzinger was a, you know, a, a, a priest and theologian during the council. And, and then he was, you know, he was a bishop and then he was the, you know, he worked, he was the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which is one of the offices of the um, Vatican. And then he was elected pope and be, took the name uh, Benedict the Sixteenth. So would you say? And, and the, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. Okay, I was just going to ask. Um, would you say since you know Protestants split from the Church and the Catholic Reformation and all that happened, do you think the Protestant and Catholic Church is moving further away from each other or closer together? Well, I wouldn't use the generalization of a Protestant church. Um, you, you can look at the different denominations. Yeah. And for example, theologically, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran have resolved, Lutheran Church have resolved many of our differences. Um, but what we recognize is that our traditions have gone in different directions. So there's a lot of work that's been done in terms of what we call ecumenical dialogue. 
Okay, so that's that is dialogue between the various Christian denominations. Um, there's a lot of work that's been done with the Anglican Church, for example. So um, I, I I would not use a, an umbrella term of yeah. Protestant churches because the you know the various um, denominations within uh, you know uh, Protestantism have their own differences and you know and oh yeah you know their own theology for example hmm. okay all right now you know what Josh I was thinking you know do you remember the symbol we use here um, at CCM or we have a logo we have a motto and a and a symbol that we use as our logo do you remember what it is not off the top of my head unfortunately Okay, it's the scallop shell. And the scallop shell goes back to the pilgrimages, you know, the, the Camino. You know, people were doing pilgrimages across um, Europe to, to uh, you know, Santiago Compostela in Spain. Okay. And um, they, the, the, that shell is the symbol of the pilgrim because the pilgrims carried them because you could drink water with them, you could eat food with them. There are many things you could do, but if you visualize the scallop shell, um, the striations go from one central point to the edges. You know, the clams, they're sort of concentric circles, if you look yeah. at the lines on a shell of a clam, but the scallop shell all go to one foci, one point. And part of the reason I like that symbol is because we all are on our own, we're all on journeys, but all of our journeys, hopefully, are bringing us closer to God, that one point. And um, that's why that, that symbol is meaningful to me, and that's why we adopted that symbol here um, at Campus Ministry, because we're all pilgrims on a journey, and we you know, have to find our way you know, to God. It's a great picture. So you said one of your charisms is that the right word? Okay, yes, the, the char. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, one of your charisms is inclusivity. Is that? Um, what a part of our charism? Uh, it comes from the Christian humanistic position of our foundress, or her, you know, the, that has influenced how you know our community, our manner of being, and. Um, and it has to do with recognizing that each person is created in the image of God and has a dignity and uniqueness about them. And therefore, when we encounter the other, we encounter them with an openness and hospitality. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So how can we encourage that spirit of hospitality and inclusivity Within the whole church, not just the Catholic yeah. church. Well, I think we can go to the Gospels and look at Jesus and look at how Je- look at who Jesus welcomes and how Jesus welcomes and what Jesus teaches. I um, last week I was teaching a class on the Incarnation and I was tying it into every each of each person of faith's call to discipleship. And I said to this class, 
You know, there are many people who look to the cross and they find their call to discipleship in the shadow of the cross. I'm somewhat influenced by the writings of John Scotus, who was a Franciscan theologian, and he um, talks about the incarnation as the fulfillment of God's love for his creation. And so I suggest that perhaps we need to look at our call to discipleship in the shadow of the manger. You know, think about God becoming human in Jesus and choosing to become an infant, a vulnerable infant to a poor couple, you know, being born in a manger. I mean, that's extraordinary. Think about that. And so there's something to tell us about that. And there's something that Jesus' early ministry and his teachings has to tell us about how we ought to be with one another. You know, um, you know, Jesus was a Jew, you know, and Jesus' was, message was to be welcoming of everyone. You know, think of the Syrophoenician woman. Think of the woman caught in adultery. Think of the lepers. Think of all the people who Jesus, whose lives Jesus touched. I think there's a real message in that. And I get right back to table fellowship. You know, I, Josh, I'm sure you were here when I invited the student leaders here to contact the other religious leaders. And I said, you know, Thanksgiving is a uniquely American celebration. Well, I mean, it, other, other countries have it, but we celebrate Thanksgiving at a particular time. I said, wouldn't it be great if we could have an interfaith prayer service um, to mark Thanksgiving? And, you know, they sent emails to the other church leaders, and, like, they never got together. They never were face-to-face. And I said, you know what the problem is here is you don't know each other. You know, your abstractions to each other. So that's when we decided to do um, an interfaith Thanksgiving dinner. And so we invited the Muslim Student Association, the Hillel group. Uh, we invited, we invited the smaller groups because there are, you know, like, um, crew and, you know, crossroads are much larger than we are and, and overflow is larger, you know. So we invited the, uh, Presbyterian group and the Episcopalian group and we had set up tables of 10, and we mixed the group up. And what I invited people to do before we began our meal was to go around and introduce themselves and to say one thing they were thankful for. And what was most extraordinary to me was those students sat at those tables for over two hours talking. Wow. And, you know, and, you know, it was, you know, for some of the Muslim students, they've never talked to Catholic students or Jewish students or whomever. They've always stayed within their own group. And so for me, it was a real Thanksgiving because the, the it broke down walls and barriers, you know, um, and fear because fear is what keeps us separated you know, more than anything else. Um, you know, there are differences, but diversity can be enriching, you know, if we're not afraid. You know, it's like what I said to you, um, you know, going to the Congo, for example. You know, 
I, I am an American. I mean, I think like an American. Um, and I am not better or lesser a person than, you know, the sisters I was visiting. Um, we think differently about a lot of things because of our life experience. But I am enriched and I, I am a better person for having those relationships with people from different parts of the world who have, or people who have different confessions. You know, it yeah. enriches me, you know, and it's not, um, you know, it's, it's nothing to fear. You know, I think one of the things we're dealing with today is, um, we're being fed a lot of, um, you know, information that's telling us we should be afraid. You know, this whole growth of nationalism throughout the world, you know, it's, us and them, when we, the more that we can see ourselves as a we, you know, sharing a common humanity, um, you know, we make strides, you know, towards being who I think God wants us to be. Um, for me, I think one of the most significant icons of the 20th, 20th century was that vision of the, the earth from the moon. You know, the blue marble, mm. this, this, yeah. this beautiful living, you know, thing, you know, this dynamic, um, planet we live on, you know, and we're all breathing the same air. And, you know, the more we recognize our common humanity, we're always going to have differences. Well, families have differences, you know, um, yeah. but we're, but we, we share a common humanity. And, you know, the more we become human, the more we allow others to be, you know, human at, and recognize them as persons, um, the, the better we treat them. I mean, what's going on at the border right now, for example, you know, I think we fail to see these people who are fleeing, you know, very difficult situations as fellow human beings. And, you know, if we objectify them, you know, or reify them, well, then we don't have to worry about them as as persons. But they are persons. They're real people. And I think, you know, the gospel calls us to pay attention to, you know, our fellow human being. So that's how I think, ultimately, um, we come closer together, wow. is by... In, informing ourselves, educating ourselves, um, and being less afraid. And also, I think all of us who are people of faith have to sort of grow a little bit more in epistemological humility. You know, our, our traditions are developed over time, but we don't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. You know, there, there will be that great day, you know, when we speak of the beatific vision, when we stand before the face of God, you know, when things will be much clearer. But right now, you know, we're all doing the best we can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the table is just such a good answer for so much. I mean, not only church unity, not only unity like you were talking about, and that the image of a blue marble really is just a fantastic image. But you're talking about breaking down walls and breaking down fear. You know, even for people who... You know, their main concern is 
spreading the gospel. You know, you don't do it through fear and telling them they're going to hell and beating them over the shoulder. You got to break down some of those walls. When you get past fear, that's when you can have those open conversations about the gospel. And I think, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the table, the hospitality, that's that's a real key to that. Also, this is a very Southern holidays episode. I like it. We've mentioned the birth of Christ for Christmas. We've talked about Thanksgiving and hospitality. So there we go. Happy Southern holidays, everybody. Yeah, hospitality, my favorite Southern holiday. Yeah, yeah my, mine too, man. <laughs> Amen. It, it's every day in the South, though. Every day is a holiday. Yeah, yeah that's why God loves South Carolina so much. <laughs> oh, man. So, is there a way for average Joe and Sally from Yada Yada Baptist Church uh, to promote that feeling of inclusivity in the church? Sister Rose? Um, I think anything's possible. I think that, um, you know, a lot of the responsibility falls on the leadership, but not leadership alone. You know, so much comes from the grassroots. So much is organic. And the day somebody wakes up and decides they're going to be the best person they could be, you know, more loving, more generous, less judgmental, less fearful. You know, that's where it begins. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we're talking about the table. Anyone can invite someone to their table, you know. And I'll say to TJ's question that he didn't ask me that um, you don't... You don't. It doesn't have to be a college student. If you, anyone in your church, you can tell that they need a meal. Invite them over. Give them a meal. And if you can't think of anyone immediately, find whatever college is closest to you. Figure out what Christian organizations or Muslim organizations, whatever, are there. Contact the leader. Which I'll tell you, that's how I found Sister Rose's number. Just the UNCW site has the leader of CCM on there, and ask them, hey, is there a student you think would be willing or would like a meal that I could, you know, either go to or have them over and just give them pizza. And uh, chances are that opportunity to help someone will absolutely arise when you try to find it. You know, Josh, uh, not to bring up, open up a whole nother can of worms, but I, I, there's something that I did want to tell you. You know, ever since Hurricane Florence hit here, as you well know, uh, UNCW and Wilmington in general was sort of ground zero for Florence. Oh, yeah. Um, because we were a church ministry, we were very easily able to sign up as a partner with the food bank in for southeastern North Carolina. And so we used the chapel as a distribution center for water and food and cleaning supplies and so forth. But what it what happened was, you know, ever since I came here over 11 years ago, um, I've always been aware that there are students who experience food insecurity. And I have always provided emergency food uh, quietly. You probably didn't know that, but there have always been students who are homeless and or are, you know, struggling. And so that's something that I've been doing ever since I arrived. But since we started using the chapel for a distribution center, once the storm was over and we were no longer a disaster area, we continued to do the food distribution. So every Thursday afternoon, we have Huff's Harvest Pantry, and we have the university support 
uh, for this. And so their UNCW now has a food pantry for students who are experiencing food insecurity every Thursday afternoon. Wow. And you'd be amazed at both the response on the part of the university, organizations, departments, um, residence life, fraternities, sororities, uh, clubs who have all been donating food. The local churches have been donating food. And just this semester alone, we've distributed well over 100 bags of groceries to students who are experiencing food insecurity. Wow. Um, and we're, we're not unique. This is something that folks are realizing all across the country. So that is another way. Check out and see if uh, the, a campus near you um, has a food pantry. And if it doesn't, maybe you can help get something started. Um, but it is, it's definitely a need. It's, there are many students who are sent off to college and their tuition is paid for, but they, you know, don't have the money they need to be able to pay their rent and, you know, get their groceries. A lot of graduate students are, you know, teaching assistants or lab assistants and they do get their stipend, but it's often not enough to make ends meet. So I see a lot of graduate students, um, you know, be waiting to get their check in the you know so they're picking up groceries um but that has gone on at ccm now um since last january wow that's pretty incredible yeah you know they say a picture speaks a thousand words i, I have to say food speaks at least a million <laughs> yes yes when you're hungry you know you can't think about much else you know yeah. so oh, yeah. um yeah, that's you know, and as I and as I said, you know, table fellowship. Go through the scriptures. Go look at look at the gospels, and, and count how many occasions Jesus is sharing table fellowship. Yeah, it, yeah. It, there's a message there. Yeah, I used to think it was funny, especially if you read uh, just just the end of all the gospels, like after Jesus raises back from the dead. How many of the passages just start with? Then Jesus was at their table. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. My, one of my favorite passages is Jesus at the lakeside cooking the fish. That's one of my favorite passages. <laughs> Just a good image. Oh, man. Yeah. And Tuesday breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> now, what would Jesus do? He'd make breakfast. Jeez. He would make breakfast, and if someone... Doesn't like that. He'd flip their table and make more breakfast. <laughs> make more breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> fish fry. That's what Jesus would do. Yeah. <laughs> breakfast. Just having champion. low country boiled up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so that's uh. What do you think we would see change in the church? If, you know, people start being inclusive and everyone's, you know, helping one another, feeding each other. Everyone's having a fresh fish fry every day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fish fry every day. Then we would have really high cholesterol. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's the ramifications. There you go. (laughs) Oh, man. We live in hope. You know, we speak of, you know, Jesus' salvific act has taken place. You know, the kingdom is at hand, but is not yet. 
And so we work towards that. I think what you're looking for is ultimately when, when the reign of God has come is when we're all going to be at one table. Um, you know, but in the meantime, we have to, we have to, um, we have to work the best we can each day. Good stuff. So wrapping up finally, <laughs> we we like to do just a couple segments to to end, and uh, one is just for our patrons, and we do that after the outro. But uh, the other one is called our God Moment of the Week, where we just talk about something God's done for us, or something we've seen that we're thankful for, or you know, anything spiritual really in the last week that uh, we've experienced. And um, yeah, it, it helps us kind of be more thankful. We talked about thankfulness earlier, and I think it helps our listeners remember that we're real people, which is good. Um, I'll go ahead and start. Mine actually is of the week this time, TJ. Oh, good job. Yeah, I know. It oh, was actually yesterday. Uh, we had a cold front and rain coming in, which uh, I, I think most of our listeners know I have a metal plate in my head. So... Cold front plus rain equals lots and lots of pain, like a whole lot of pain. And I remember in the evening, you know, I was at work and I was trying to think of uh, where I could get medicine or what what I could do to try and kind of alleviate the headache, maybe caffeine, you know. I was, th- I was thinking of pretty much everything except for prayer. And it just kind of made me, I don't know, it was challenging to realize prayer wasn't my first thought. It was like probably 10th. And I was like, man... That's rough. And uh, I guess my God moment of the week is just realizing I need to rely on prayer a little bit more and think about it more instead of, you know, it being the tenth thing. So, right. yeah, that's going to be mine. Yeah. Instead of being the tenth, it should probably be the first. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the goal. We'll see how it goes. I'll update everybody on God week, God moment of the next week. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, mine... My God moment of the week, uh, you know, this week it, it, it wasn't going to be about anything hockey related. Until. Uh, yeah. And then <laughs> the, uh, nice. the Arizona or Phoenix, yeah, it's Arizona. Now. Yeah. The Arizona Coyotes, uh, the NHL is becoming a, a weird place right now. Uh, four coaches have been fired in the past week and a half. It's a whole thing, uh, and it's to promote inclusivity. You know, these people are getting moved out of positions of power because they were unusually cruel or they were racist. You know, that's not okay. And uh, even in other things, yeah, even in other things, uh, the Coyotes, for no real reason, decided they were going to make new jerseys to support the local children's hospital in Phoenix. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and they were just going to wear them for warm-ups and then give them away. So that's, that's just... It, it's nice to see such a large organization be intentional about what they're doing. That is cool. Yeah. Very nice. That's just... Huh. So, Sister Rose, did you have a God moment of the week this week? Anything God spoken oh, to? Oh, Yeah. Oh, all the time, but... I the whole think week. This... This past week, um, you know, we had our last Mass last Sunday evening. And at that Mass, we honor the graduates. And we have a couple, we had, we had two December graduates 
and I look at these two students, and one um, finished a degree in elementary education last May, but stayed on to finish a double major in Spanish so that she would be able to better respond to the needs of her students and better able to um, communicate with the parents of children who are new immigrants. And because she stayed on, you know, um, and she's bilingual, um, she was offered a job and she's going to start working on Monday, as a matter of fact, um, wow. in fifth grade elementary language arts, which is what her passion is. And, you know, I have had the privilege of journeying with her and watching her grow. The other student is um, graduating with a business degree and will be in the MLF draft in January. Awesome. Um, he's going out to work, uh, you know, he's go- he, he practiced with the Atlanta team and he's going out. Uh, he graduates tomorrow and he goes out to practice at a combine in Colorado um, the next day. Um, so- but he's been the captain of the soccer team here at UNCW for two years. And what impressed me is not so much his achievements on the pitch. But in the man he has become, and he's become, both of them have become men and women for others. And so all that they do gives God glory. And they're very conscious of that. And they both have excelled in what their path has been, their chosen path. And so whether it's the classroom or the soccer pitch, whatever we do, you know, we can give glory to God. And I have had the privilege of walking with them, cooking them breakfast, um, but watching them grow and make decisions that have led them to this point. And so it gives me uh, reason uh, to give thanks to God for them, the gift that they are to this community and wherever they go. And it just it's a privileged place for me um, as a campus minister. I so often say I'm like, the ambient light. I'm I'm present to them in in the ups and downs of their lives while they're here at UNCW, and uh, then I get to watch them, you know, soar. And it's um, I give God thanks every day. I have the best job in the world. Wow, praise that's God. awesome. Yeah, praise God. So uh, we're gonna start our outro, and then after that, we have that last segment just for our Patreon subscribers so uh for those of you who haven't subscribed subscribe and everyone will get to hear it because you're all going to subscribe so it'll be great yeah exactly yeah Uh, thanks for listening guys uh this is a great episode and glad to have you here with us where you are on the show but uh there are still some things that we need from you uh your unconditional love and support if that's not too much (laughs) to ask uh, yeah, unconditional. Uh, all, of, all of your money, of course. <laughs> oh, that's not too much, also. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> really, uh, three dollars like a month would be great. Yeah, oh, that would be excellent. Yeah, at Patreon. We'd like you guys to consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and then hostile takeover <laughs> our Twitter. Actually, all of our social media needs help, so feel free to just do them all. Uh, we've got big things planned, but we need your help. Oh, yeah. 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 And, uh, we want each and every one of you to be a guest also, so uh, hit me up. 
you know, please give us. <laughs> oh, go. go ahead. <laughs> I was just laughing. Uh, please give us some feedback. Uh, either let's see, just email us at thewholechurch at gmail dot com, or let us know in the comments on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, uh, Mixer, Stitcher, Anchor. Wherever you let us know. Comment, leave a comment. Join our Facebook page. We like Call to hear us, from people. Us if you want to reach us. Come outside my window, shout really loud. Whatever you say, I'll repeat on the podcast, so please don't include profanity. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, speaking of future guests, I, I've talked to someone. I don't want to say your name because I haven't confirmed, but it uh, sounds like we're going to have a guest on who was an atheist and was converted as an adult to the Mormon faith. So I'm really interested oh. to talk to him, yeah. So, uh, more on that later. Um, who, who are some other people we have planned? I've been saying Sister Rose for a while. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to do another episode with Chandler Goodrich, uh, we think. Oh, yeah. We would like to, at least. Uh, he would. Yeah. I think we're at Pastor Matt Moorhead on from Crossway Church, also in Wilmington. And then another one I'm really excited for is we're going to have sort of a debate episode or conversation episode uh-huh. with uh, my little brother, Matthew Knoll, who is a Calvinist. And Reverend Kino Kennedy will be back, who, uh, as our listeners would know, is an Arminian. I think most people are Arminian. So uh, we'll have those two talk about the big diff- that big difference, which is kind of a, it's called, would you call it a wedge issue in the Protestant faith? I think wedge issue is the right term. Yeah. But they'll, they'll be talking about that, so I'm excited for that. And of course, at the end of season one, DJ, we'll have, uh, we'll have Francis Chan. Who just doesn't know it yet. Yeah. But he will soon, because you guys are going to tell us. And we're going to keep tagging him in every of, podcast. Right. And then at the end of season two, we'll have the Pope. We'll have Pope Francis. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. The joke is that the seasons don't end until we finally convince these people to be on the podcast. That'll work, man. Yeah, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to play out. It'll be great. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thank you so much.